accept start you know they start events with an acknowledgement of who the traditional owners of the land are and where that comes from now obviously in the metropole in the heart of empire uh, that's a that's a different conversation to have um but wouldn't it be great if we could actually think about what are some of the lessons from those from those places and maybe have that national conversation i saw i sort of tongue-in-cheek so david lammy was speaking at that event and um, Canada has this national truth and reconciliation what they call a truth and reconciliation uh, framework with all of these recommendations and I was like maybe it's time for the UK to have one right mm -hmm. could we have some kind of big commission <coughs> review like we have all of these piecemeal things we have the McPherson report we have uh, the Lamy review and we have you know but nothing ever joins the dots it's always sector specific um, could we have that kind of conversation could we imagine it maybe Sorry. Yeah. We should not be glorifying Canada's solution or their acknowledgement of Indigenous lives. Sorry, just as a Canadian. It's <laughs> yeah. like bullshit. It's complete bullshit. I think it's incredibly problematic for some reasons. It's like, I just, I'm pushing, I know people always look, because we're neighbours to big bad America, we're often looked at as, as being somehow more progressive in these areas, and I don't think we are. No, but then you have got a national commission that's just like openly saying there was, you know, there is ongoing genocide here against indigenous women, which they couldn't have even said like five years ago. So I accept totally what you're saying, that it's not all like milk and honey in Canada. Um, <laughs> but I do think there's something to be said for some kind of cross-cutting look at all of the ways. So one of the things that the action plan in Canada has is that it has all of those different sectors, but it brings it all together into a narrative about... <laughs> What's going on? But yeah, I understand what you're saying. But like learning from strategies, like Britain, we can't speak it. Like a lot of the things that we have to say, we we don't, we can't. Well, you choose not to. Like, oh, we choose. Yeah. yeah. You choose not to. Mm. As an American, I, I find it very problematic mm. because people want to say things like, "We'll just say it." And just have a conversation about it because you can't. You got to sit in a room and say, "Well, why is it that I'm the only black male at the senior leadership table and everyone is white, but 89% of my population of students is black?" That's a problem. But they're like, "Oh, you never, never said it before." No, you just chose not to. And I think we got to recognize if you're going to talk about decolonizing the curriculum or talking about why we don't have enough diversity or inclusion or equity across the campus, it's not that we choose not to speak. Whereas you choose not, you choose not to speak, not that you can't. Because that says you can't talk about these issues. Now I think people are nervous about repercussions because I can I can even think about the sciences in the states where academics weren't getting tenure because they were they were using things like sustainable chemistry and new chemistry technology. And the traditionalists in the chemistry field were like, We don't understand this, we don't think it's right, you're denied your tenure. You know, it's things like that. And when we joined the scandal, because they they made a big deal about it things started to change. And I think that's one thing academics need to start doing, is where is the scandal in this? Yeah. Where is that, you know, we're sick and tired of X, Y, and Z, something needs to be done, and we're all going to do it as a group. And because every institution is trying to think about their own gaps and their own things separately, instead of saying, how would we come together as a, as a body to be able to say, this is what we're unacceptable for, we're not going to accept it anymore, mm -hmm. and putting pressure on people, then but that hasn't necessarily happened. So it's a question of when. And that is the effect of the interaction of, let's say, the neoliberal competitive environment with the sort of push to do this. Because for each institution, it's now we want to be better than X, we want to be better than Y, rather than yeah, the thing that you're saying. Good. Are there any other people who want to feedback from their groups? Sorry, I know we haven't heard from all the groups yet. Um, no. <laughs> 
mean, a lot of the challenges with doing this work, particularly around the curriculum, is that we don't know what we don't know, and it takes quite a long time to find out. So, um, that, like, if institutions want to seriously support and resources, they need to make the time and workloads to do the research, and they need to recognise and reward people who are doing this work as being valuable, not just to their individual syllabus, but as a sort of uh, a thing to do within educational leadership. Um, so some of the, yeah, I mean, so there are some pathways through which you can sort of mobilise it to attract academics. Um, one way might be through the HEA qualifications that you get, that you can talk about doing this kind of work as an example of how you are showing leadership or showing development in your teaching. Um, it's a small pathway, maybe don't say a bit more about that, but um, yeah, it's just a, it's a possibility. Yeah. about race 
is very crucial. Mm. And in part, we're now at a breaking point because some people are very literate in it and some people are not. And that's producing wider antagonisms than there were maybe. I mean, certainly when I was at uni, I wouldn't have dreamed of saying any of this stuff to anybody even vaguely involved in the thing. Remember, I wrote one essay which was a little bit critical of colonialism and I got a big one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think also the social... Because I, I think the desire to say something witty or insightful really immediately is, is problematic, actually, because to, for two reasons. One is ideas are hard, so I think we need to admit that this is tough, even for those of us who think about it all the time, both uh, emotionally but also intellectually. You know, it's, it's not easy. Uh, and secondly, uh, I think a consequence of that is we'll all get things wrong at times, and I think people get things wrong for good faith reason, so we shouldn't always assume that people are getting things wrong because they're jerks or racists or, you know, of bad mm -hmm. faith. There is a lot of that, and there's more of it on social media, um, but I think, I think a precondition of having the conversation must be that you have to sit in a room with someone who you think gets things badly wrong um, and not immediately shouting at them, um, <laughs> while still figuring out a way to progress the debate. <laughs> From, from that wrong position. So I think it's, I, yeah, I, I, I sometimes really think the grass is greener in, in universities because in, in the sort of think tank social media world, there's no space for that. And I do worry, like, are we shutting down all spaces for that if, if universities are starting to become infected by that kind of fake news thing? But I, I, I think the final thing I'd say on that is I am, though, having said all that, I am a little bit worried about this both sides-isms, too, because it's like, it sort of implies the view that holds that racism is wrong is kind of equally kind of out there as the view that slavery wasn't bad, you know? So I don't, I don't think there's two sides that are uh, of equally good merit. There's a reason why over, you know, over this last period of time we've decided that some ideas are better than others and some moral principles are better than others. So I think we have to, yeah. I don't have an answer to any of that, but I, I, I would like more spaces like this to, to, to think. But I think it does mean um, living with people getting things wrong and figuring out how to... Th th that might be you, that might be me as well. So I had a contribution here. Um, back to, did you have your hand up? Sure. Um, I'll go with him. Sorry, I don't know your name, sir. So. <coughs> What would uh, your take be on, uh, there are several uh, British universities that have recently announced um, sort of internal audits of their relationship to slavery and I think colonization, mm -hmm. Glasgow is one of them, yeah. there may be others in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. Cambridge. Cambridge. I think it's a great idea. I mean, they need to be followed through with something. So the reason it's a great idea is because it's not... <coughs> symbolism of it. It's like a genuine reflection on the constitutive role that human inequality has played in creating the wealth that is enjoyed by a particular space, right? So if your salary comes from a foundation which was founded on, you know, the wealth of the sugar slave made by enslaved people, then um, you might want to do something about that. And there are claims that might be made. We have a funny relationship to racism and responsibility. We don't want any responsibility for things that our ancestors did, but we want to inherit all of their property. And that is an untenable equation. 
So if we've inherited something, then we inherit the responsibility to do something, I think. Then, so there's already a book about SOAS's relationship, and we're actually, one of the things we're doing, we've started a module on the colonial curriculum, and one of the things that the students are going to be doing is looking into the archive of SOAS's past and doing that relationship. Um, SOAS, I mean, SOAS's main endowment was from the British state, which itself was a big imperial state, so in that sense, yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Um, but uh, we try to acknowledge that as well in what we say about ourselves. So I suppose my fear, I suppose. So there's a lot of work, great work being um, that's happening now, and uh, these conversations that are happening. And I'm just, as a historian, very aware that they've happened before. And they, there's like these periods in history where these, these kinds of, where the institution and it's sort of the marginalized sort of come together on a point. And it's, the civil rights movement is probably the most recent one, right? And, like Derek Bell talks about this in terms of interest convergence, where, where the needs of the institution converge with the needs of the marginalized. And so there's all these sort of um, changes in, in, in laws and in practices and so on and so forth. But it, inevitably, they, they always get retracted, right? As soon as those things. And so um, um, what kind of things do we need to do to embed this so that like how do you how do you make this long? To, <laughs> otherwise, this just gets wasted. Yeah. So I think, and also because like I am like European Canada, the multicultural nineties. I'm sure it was the same thing here, right? Like there was this sort of eighties and nineties moment where everything was celebrated. and It's all lovely. We're all good. Yeah, I think that we're not good. Yeah, we're not. Are we not good? And you know, four hundred years of downward pressure <laughs> takes a long time to come out of it if we can. Um, so I think institutionalizing it, in per like at least in this sector, institutionalizing it as a requirement of what it means to be a teacher in a public institution or to be an educator. Um, and we have to embed it in our training. We have to embed it in the basic things that we say, like before we put you in front of a class, you need to understand how racism works and how it may have affected your students. I feel like we need to build that into like basic standards mm. of like what it means to do this, um, and we don't have anything like that at the moment. Uh, within SOAS, we have done a couple of little tweaks. One thing we've done is change the annual program review uh, so that one of the questions that the program conveners are asked are: Have you engaged with this toolkit? Have you done anything as a result of it? And so to prompt them to keep reflecting on that. One of the things that we've added to our student evaluation modules, so the questionnaires, the feedback questionnaires, is how has your course dealt with questions of structural inequality, diversity and inclusion, so the students and feedback and that. So there's a bit of routinization going on so that this just kind of becomes part of the fabric. And yes, it can become tokenized and some people will mm -hmm. just box tick because that's the nature of it. Um, but if it becomes, a, ref I guess, a sort of reflexive habit, then I suppose that's better than not. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I had somebody at the back. Yes, in front of back. Yeah. So we're talking a lot. Yeah. We talked a lot about like um, ideas, and obviously the academy is the realm of ideas and the rational. But but the, the obstacle that seems most obvious for me is, is emotional feeling. Like that mm. um, white people aren't able to talk about racism without having a meltdown, which is really sort of <laughs> vagueness, denial, defensiveness, a kind of overwhelming sense of shame, which then leads to conversation like flatlining. And then reappearing ten years later. If you can't hold something emotionally, you can't do it rationally. So it's 
I know it's um, we're meant to be just purely rational people, but we're not able to do that. So um, within any action we take to try and deal with the situation, how do we bring in, bring in some kind of emotional literacy training in which people enable people to hold it, to hold their own feelings of shame or inadequacy about essentially absorbing like racist behaviour in a racist society and then enacting that about absorbing or only teaching the um, very white curriculum they were taught in the first place and having to go back to square one and not really know any scholars of colour in their area actually, even though they're a lecturer. So it's just about how how we can acknowledge that aspect of it. Uh, I think of it as the kind of don't mention the war thing, the don't mention the war thing, like how we talk about both power and emotion and rise up strongly and we're not meant to talk about in public. So this might enable us to actually continue a conversation ongoingly rather than having it keep you know, flatlining and reappearing and flatlining again and again and again for another few years, like another one need anniversary. Yeah. Any tips? <laughs> I don't know, I just, it's just missing. No, Generosity, what, what you said, Omar, is very important, actually. It's incredibly important. Yeah. So if you feel like you can't say anything wrong, then you're not saying anything wrong. Mm -hmm. so I think for all of us, allow that generosity. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, if you want to. I, 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 have, I, I grappled with a dilemma which sort of relates to what you can and can't say, which is one of the things I do is I teach new academics at Oxford how to do admissions interviews. Part of the stuff about that <laughs> is um, about recognising that it's a stressful situation for the students and trying to make everything as you know, challenging academically but in no, no other ways. And we were doing mock interviews, and one of the lawyers produced us her case study um, at the time it was in the news about forced marriages and what did we think about how legislation on forced marriages And I said, I appreciate that in the tutorial you you know, you have to be able to discuss all the points of, of the law. But frankly, I would steer clear of that in interviewing because for some people this could be a much close yeah, it could be much closer to home than for others, and therefore you're potentially putting more people under stress than others. And we never really resolved whether we felt that was equitable, fair, and appropriate or not. I mean, I certainly think you ought to be able to teach it in the tutorial. Yeah, well, so I think that's the thing about like building relations of trust. You actually can have very difficult conversations with somebody once you've established that level of trust and respect with them, which you don't have the space to do in a university admissions interview, so I would probably agree with your judgment on that. But, yeah, you can... So it's partly about building empathy, mm -hmm. and the, the sentence that needs repeating almost more than any other is that racism is about impact, not intention. Mm -hmm. right? It's got nothing to do with your intention. It's got nothing to do with whether you're a good or a bad person. It's about the structure of the social order. Now, that's not to say that you're not part of that, but um, it's the most. I think it's one of the most important messages to get out there when you're talking about it. Um, well, that's I, yeah. one reason I've always found it weird that institutional racism didn't go further. Because yeah. I, I feel like on the conversation about racial inequalities and, and racism, one of the defensivenesses is, are, you know, being called a racist is about the worst thing to be called. <laughs> so people think that you're saying that they are racist when there are unequal racial outcomes in their institution. Mm -hmm. So I kind of thought that institutional racism would be easier to sell in some ways because it sort of 
somewhat circumvents this sort of defensiveness, like, are you calling me a bad person? Um, but people still, I, th I think that's where a lot of the defensiveness comes from. People think you're implying, even if you're not saying it, that they are morally part of, responsible for uh, racism. But can I pick up on that? Because I think, I, I agree with you, but I think the next step on it is, and they know they are. And that's the bit that's not said. Because I, I think it's almost like the elephant in the room that we're saying, you know, people, people are worried that you're judging them for being racist. Now, I think they're worried that you're judging them for being racist, and they probably are being racist as well. Not all the time, and it is about not the intention but the impact, but the number of white academics who've either complained about me doing work in my institution or cried, or cried on senior leaders about me doing that work because they love all their students. So how could I possibly say that anything that they were doing is, is you know, racist in any way or has racist overtones? But I think what that comes down to is that deep inside them, well, not that deep inside them, <laughs> There's, you know, there's a real grain of truth to some of what's going on, because, but I think that's the thing that a lot of people aren't willing to get to that next point to actually say, do you know mm. what, you might be right, and it's, so my struggle is how do we actually get people to that point, and, and I don't know the answer to that, but I think a lot of people's willingness to engage in a conversation about institutional racism or racism any, of any form is that little bit that goes a little bit further than that and it is that feeling about you know guilt and shame and all of the things that you've mentioned about and, and but that doesn't get talked about because we never seem to be able to get the conversation to the point where anybody feels comfortable enough to say I do feel like that and that affect that effectiveness of these conversations so the barriers go up yeah. because people don't want to experience that that feeling of the, the personal affect in, in the conversation. So it gets deflected onto other arguments about somebody else's problem or explaining it away for another reason or using the wrong terminology. I'm not wanting to think about this because none of us want to actually think yeah. about ourselves in this. And that's the bit that we've really got to get to. And that that's really hard, isn't it? Yeah. And that's really I'll hard. For I'll tell you a very quick story. And I've got to like sort of three people that want to come in. We, and the very quick story is this, that um, when we set up the anti-racist training, or what I thought was going to be anti-racist training at SOAS, uh, we ended up including a lot more things into it because a lot of people, a lot of colleagues wanted to include assessment and other things in that. But I, I was in conversation at the same time with a South African student that had experienced um, what she had experienced as racist behaviour in a classroom from a teacher, which the teacher did not see at all as being... Uh, a race thing and one of the methodologies she had worked through in her previous kind of life in South Africa as a diversity trainer was actually a long kind of deep truth-telling healing in a room people crying type methodology like a whole day a whole long meeting where people really open up and drill into that emotional resistance and she, she wanted she was suggesting that we should have that kind of work and we didn't have the institutional space to accommodate that. I was like, I've got 45 minutes, I've got, one. I've got an hour and a half. I don't think we can get there. Um, and so one of the issues is the space of like non-modular kind of uh, conversations. Um, sorry, I had the, um, you and then you and then, uh, yes, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, um, 
I think part of the challenge is, and it's been brought up before, is about language. So we kind of talk that racism happens elsewhere, that this is a racist, is this type of person, it's NF, it's this, it's that, and, and you can kind of separate that from yourself. So as soon as people hear the word racism, without there being a, a deep understanding of like institutional racism, you know, language that I'm starting to pick up and I've picked up in different places, I think part of that discomfort and that fear is also because you hear that word and you just think of it in one way rather than having a better understanding of, of what that language means and when people talk about reverse racism, right, if you read more about racism about power structures and so you would argue that reverse racism can't happen because it, it's about who holds the power. But you know, like when you say white privilege, like I've talked about white privilege in lectures and, and people are like, well I'm working class, I can't be privileged and it's trying to break down that language because you can't even have that conversation until there's kind of like an understanding of the language I think. Mm. It's, it's still not easy and people still freak out, but I think that's part of getting people to the point of having that discussion is supporting with the language and what it means as well. Mm. Okay. Uh, it's a really tough question the conversation we need to have with ourselves. Yeah. Because it's a racist society, we can make a whole list of 10 or 30 or 40 things that we were all completely a part of, one way or another. We can say we didn't vote in Parliament and we didn't uh, join Assad in Syria and go cheering as he saw the planes take off and kill hundreds and thousands of people. But there's no way for us to get away from the conversation, in my opinion, with ourselves about how we're a part of all of it one way or the other. We can say we'll take a little more risk here and challenge a little more there or a little less. Nevertheless, we're very well embedded in our comfort zone. And I would suggest, even here today, in this very open place, with unlimited support, really, we're protected here, that we're logged on to the words equality, marginal, uh, qualities, um, where's my, oh yeah, equality, disadvantage, and participation. Here are our big three words. Why mean participation? I will suggest these are soft words. Okay? And onto equalities, I would like to tie rights. Equalities and rights. And the problem there, if you do that, you start becoming legalistic. And that's more serious. And we don't want to go there. Because we may be illegal ourselves. And if we go to disadvantage, we don't want to really use a word like deprivation. Mm, because that keys into our morality thing and how much we eat and what our homes look like and a few other non-sharing behaviors. And I'm not saying I want a smaller home. I definitely don't. I like my garden. And a word <laughs> like participation and widening participation isn't the harsher, more accurate word, marginalization. And how are you going to make it a wider participation when the whole thing is committed to marginalization? And you can throw in manipulation and humiliation. And then you get into values. And then you say, well, what are my values? And how much am I going to risk here in this totally safe place? And I would suggest these three words I attach to equality, disadvantage, and participation are a little bit tougher to handle. And we did not handle them today. So the first conversation is with ourselves. Then the conversation with Trump, etc., is much less difficult. I wouldn't waste energy getting angry at Trump. I would figure, say, well, how am I going to talk to my brother Dave, who likes to strum in clubs, who writes beautiful songs, but he will not do anything. He will not actually do anything. But he writes the best songs in poetry you could ever watch. So I have conversations with him. My other brother, who's in advertising with pharmaceutical companies, 
and he wrote some of the stuff against generic drugs. And I challenged him like and like crazy. And he couldn't really handle it, but we love each other and we keep talking. So I say the conversation is with ourselves, right here with our immediate friends. Stop being angry. It's a waste of time. Stop talking about somebody else and pointing fingers and blaming. It's a waste of time. See what you can actually do specifically, take a risk or 10 minutes in a classroom or with your colleagues, but care about them. If you can convince them that you care more about them than they do themselves, then you will have the first step, because they don't have to get so defensive. Um, yeah, I'll take uh, these two comments and then... Oh, I just wanted to caution, I mean, that student that said about the whole day workshop thing, I've been through those in South Africa, <laughs> three day ones, Okay. been through 15 years of them, what changed? Nothing. Until the students actually started burning buildings <laughs> and ripping out statues. Until yeah. the actual nuts and bolts of institutional racism get tackled. Those feel-good workshops, people come out and they'll hug their workmate the next day and feel really good about themselves <laughs> for a week, mm. and then it all goes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I've come up with a lot of problematic thinking today about this because being a white South African male born in the height of the apartheid era being kicked out by my university for involved in student politics at that time, which was very dangerous against the apartheid thing, running away, coming here, giving my passport to the ANC, helping the ANC to get people out of South Africa, and in my second job being taken to industrial tribunal for being racist against one of my employees. You know, then you ask yourself, I mean, I ask myself, what do we mean by racism? You know, and is it so easy for people who are racists to not become racist? Because if they don't know, this, I'm not a racist, but, you know, how do we start on picking that? That's not a, a training day, you know, it's not a training day. It's deeply rooted in our psyche. You know, and these are long, hard battles and lots of thought and negotiations and whatever. It needs to go and to untangle all of this still, you know. It's not easy. Mm -hmm. um, yes, so one thing which I do, I don't know whether consciously or self-consciously, I don't like the term a racist, as if like that's a single defining characteristic of a person. A person might say racist things, they might do racist things, or they might do things which have racist effects. Um, but I think that's the thing that people key on. I have, I'm in, I have a black mark on my soul or I don't. It's a very Christian version of you know, being racist or not racist. Whereas um, specifying the behaviours and specifying the interactions just takes it all down a, <laughs> a level and makes it a bit more manageable, but also makes it more meaningful. It's not really about whether you have this because of the imagery fed into your brain over decades, uh, whether you have a, a knee-jerk reaction to 
seeing a guy who looks Muslim on the on the tube, right? It's what it's how you treat that person. It's what you say to that person. It's how you are accountable back to that person or those communities, um, because you have to yeah you have to start with the supposition that society is is like this and you're within it and you're part of it. And yeah, but yes, it's it's a big long struggle. Joan. You know, I just want to add in the comment that even though you know, we obviously live in a racist society, we all have prejudices. Sometimes the phrase, we're all racist, by feeling into the racist a really easy ride. Mm. And I, for that reason, I like your focus on um, impact rather than intent, because that's such an important interaction. If something happens, you're able to say, uh, the person is able to say, yes, you may not have meant it, but it hurt. Yes, you may not have meant it, but it change. So I think that focus on impact is just so, so critical. I think another part to that saying, though. That thing about, like, we're all racist. People often stop there, but the other part to that is, unless you're actively anti-racist, I think. Right? Yeah. And so it's, it's that, that, that race, racism is normalized in our society. That's yeah. the basis of that. Okay, so um, I'm going to try and bring the discussion to a close. So I did actually have a bunch more... Uh, slides and things to say. Um, I'm not going to say them uh, because I think we've kind of visited a lot of the uh, things here. Um, I'll just maybe go forward to this one, which is maybe a bit Pollyanna-ish, but I, I think what we're, trying to, what we're trying to do when we talk about decolonizing education, thinking about racism, is these four different things which need to be in the mix. So one is literacy, like what is the problem that we are talking about? If people don't understand the problem, then you're already starting with one hand tied behind your back. Second is empathy. You don't just need to know that, but there's some space in our training or our work together that needs to make you feel that. Um, one of the most effective things I think our colleague Carol does with the disabilities thing is that she starts the workshop, she makes people write with their non-dominant hand uh, as quickly as they can and you know take notes from her lecturing. It does much more than all kinds of uh, work because it makes people feel what it is like to be X. Um, and so I, that's a you know a long a long slow thing, but it needs to be built into the literacy, the emotional literacy. Uh, action, yeah, there needs to be things that we are doing. Um, but then the last thing has to be accountability. How do you know when you've done things? To whom are you accountable? What does accountability look like? So not taking the pay rise, not taking the, um, you know, the KPI. Uh, or, you know, uh, say you got something wrong. Institutions are absolutely dreadful at saying that they've done things wrong. Um, and it makes it very difficult to maintain uh, an anti-racist coalition because unless you're willing to say that you've done something wrong, and be accountable, then people will say it's just for show, and maybe it will be just for, for show. Um, so that's a key issue. I'll send the rest of my slides out to uh, the mailing list, maybe afterwards, if that's uh, useful. If we put them on yeah. there, we'll I'll send the link okay. to everybody. That would be yeah. great. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I won't maybe talk about the other things, but I'll hand back over to Jack. Okay. Yeah. Well, massive. Thank you.